ready for the word? Amen. Praise God. Don't miss tonight. It's going to be great. I got a simple message uh, for you this morning. But as I was driving over here the second time, uh, I was the second time, I forgot my phone. And as I was driving over here, I said, Lord, it's such a simple message. And God says, you know, if people would get the simple things straight, the tough things wouldn't be so hard. If we get, you know, how many know that when you make a decision that you're going to serve the Lord and then you're, you know, you're, you're, some of your family members say, hey, we want to take you out for breakfast on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. How many know that decision is not hard to make? You say, hey, I'd love to go out with you, but can we make it one? We'll go out for lunch instead because I go to church on Sunday morning. How many know that if you make some decisions, other decisions are not so hard to make? And so I want you to look at the Word of God, Romans chapter 1. And verse uh, 16, we're going to start with, Romans 1, verse 16. And I've taken a lot of my time already, but Romans 1, verse 16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone, everyone that believed, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then it goes on to say in verse 14, For I am a debtor both to the Jew, the Greek, the bond, the free, the barbarian, the wise and the unwise, so much as is in me, I am ready for the preach the gospel to you who are at Rome. And so Paul the Apostle, he made three really important decisions in his life. And I believe those, if you will, can we call them foundational decisions that he made in his life helped him when he came to other crossroads in his life. His decision-making processes wasn't so hard because he'd already determined he wasn't going to be embarrassed of the gospel. He'd already determined he was a debtor. He already determined that he was uh, ready to preach the gospel, and so he wasn't going to be deterred from that because he'd already made his decisions. I, I read a quote from Richard Harvelston. He was a chaplain of the U.S. Senate in 1995, and he was trying to explain some of the messes. You know, remember that we had, you know, a lot of the uh, uh, terrible downfalls of some of the ministries that, at that time, some big names. And he was trying to explain why the gospel had gone awry. And he said this, he said, the gospel began in the Holy Land with a fellowship of men and women around uh, a belief in the gospel of the living Christ. And then they moved to Greece and it became a philosophy. They moved to Rome, and it became an institution. It moved to Europe, and it became a culture. And then he said, last of all, it came to America, and it became a business. And I want you to think about that. Now, that's not the gospel. be the gospel, how some people think of the gospel, it's just a business, some people think it's just a philosophy, some people think it's just a culture, but my gospel, my gospel is more than just money. It's more than just buildings and programs, come on now. My gospel is more than just a, a few uh, relics that we have, a little couple symbols, it's more than just a philosophy, it is a philosophy and it, it, 
it will encompass money and it will encompass uh, uh, our culture and it will change our culture and it's, it's all that, but it's not just that. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God into salvation to those who believe, amen? And so I'm not talking about man's uh, opinion of the gospel. I'm talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I, I think it's interesting how people have tried to reduce the gospel down to certain actions. Well, they're really Christians if they do the funky chicken or really Christians if they, you know, uh, do the shaking bacon on the ground or, you know, and, 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 and people get a little squirrely. I was down in South, South Carolina, I think, or one place down in the States, and this guy was, he was going like this. <laughs> He said, Brother Mark, I wouldn't trade this for all the tea in China. I said, what is it? He goes, don't you know? Why, it's the Holy Ghost. I said, that ain't the Holy Ghost. That's just stupid. If that's all the power of the gospel brought you is a quivering lip, then you didn't get much, baby. Come on, I got the power of God. It's the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. And it may make your lip quiver, but it won't just make your lip quiver. It will change and, and revolutionize your life. Hallelujah. So one lady, this is a true story, was sitting around a table. We had preached and they wanted to go out after. And, uh, you know, me, uh, you know, people like to eat sometimes after the service. I've learned not to uh, because I, I feel like an accordion, you know, I... I lose weight, then I gain weight, then I lose weight, and I'm going in and out. And, and so I'm learning not to eat uh, after, after church. But they, one lady went up and bought a dozen donuts, and she passed it around the table, and everybody was very, you know, very moderate. They, you know, people didn't take donuts, and I, I didn't take any. And so the lady sat there, and we were talking for maybe 45 minutes, and I looked over it, and all the donuts were gone. And I wasn't judging the lady at all. But I looked at her, and I said, and I was not trying to be judgmental. I said, ma'am, you must really love donuts. And she said, oh, no, Brother Mark, that's a donut demon. Donut demon? I had never heard of that. Where's that in the Bible, you know? And so people get all squirrely about their Christianity and all squirrely about how they act and all squirrely about what the devil's making them do and all that. But I'll tell you something. I'm thankful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power of God unto salvation. And it will bust all that nonsense. And it will break chains. And it will set people free. And it will bring liberty to people's lives. Hallelujah. So Paul the Apostle said, I am not now, nor will I ever be ashamed. I am not now, nor will I ever be ashamed of the gospel. I've been ashamed of some things I've seen people do. Come on. I've been ashamed of some things I've seen churches do. I've been ashamed of some things I've seen pastors do. I'm being honest with you. I've been ashamed of some things I've done. It's true. But I've never been ashamed of the gospel. Because the purity of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. It sets the captive free. It binds up the broken heart. It heals the, the suffering, the sighing, the bleeding, the dying. It brings life to those that are, are fading away. It brings hope to the hopeless. I love the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. First message Paul, Jesus ever preached you can find it in Luke chapter 4. He got up in the synagogue and they gave him a Bible and they want, uh, the scrolls. And the Bible says he found that place where it was written. 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's a great message there. Jesus went to church, on, you know, as was his custom, and he knew his Bible. He could find the place where it was written, and, and he read the Bible. He read Luke, uh, in Luke chapter 4, we see he read from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me. For he's anointed me to preach the liberty to the, the gospel to the poor and liberty to those that are captive and healing to those that are sick and the opening of blind eyes to those that are blind and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. What was Jesus saying? His first message, the pure gospel, pure and simple and straightforward was what? Poor, you don't have to be poor anymore. Sick, you don't have to be sick anymore. Broken hearted, you don't have to be broken hearted. Those of you are hurting, you don't have to be hurting those of you confused, you don't have to be confused anymore. Those of you who have achy, breaky hearts, you don't have to have an achy, breaky heart anymore. It's called the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when it touches you, it changes and it transforms lives. Now, I believe in a gospel where Jesus went into the garden, Gethsemane, he shed uh, drops of blood mixed uh, drops of sweat mixed with drops of blood as he suffered in agony and cried to the father said lord i don't really want to go to the cross i don't but if there's another way let this cup pass from me but nevertheless not my will but thy will be done and there he, in agony, suffered and called upon the disciples and said, could you not tarry with me? Could you not pray with me? Can't you stay awake and just join with me for this season? And yet, and they came to him in the garden and they arrested him, took him to the courts of Pilate. They, bit him, they, they spit upon him and mocked him and ridiculed him and, and, and beat him and whipped him with a cat of nine tails and mocked him with all kinds of vicious words. And he took it like a man. Then they took him outside the northern part of the city and they put that old Roman cross upon his shoulders and he took a stand for us right outside that city and said, yes, Lord, not my will but thine be done. He walked all the way up the Via Della Rosa, never, stum never stumbled, never, never took a break, never, never stopped to, to go to the, 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 to the uh, souvenir store where they have a lot of souvenir stores now on the Via Della Rosa. He didn't stop. He went all the way to Galgotha's Hill for you and for me and he suffered and took those uh, nails through his hands and through his feet and he suffered and he bled and they put him up on a cross and he drops of blood mixed with water spilled upon the ground and the ground where Jesus died was stained with his righteous blood redeeming the people who were lost and sinful and needed a savior and he died and I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and on the third day, he rose again. Hallelujah. And he rose again so that those who would believe in him would not suffer, would not, would not die, would not go to hell, would not have to be purposeless, would not have to be powerless, but they could have salvation and they could have life abundant and life free. Hallelujah. That's the gospel that I know and that's the gospel that I love. I tell pastors, you know, they say, well, it must have been a challenge for some of the things you've done. In places you've gone, and I, I don't make any bones about it. It's been a challenge. It's been a sacrifice. But it's been a beautiful journey. And I talk to pastors, and they look at me as if I'm strange. I say, it's been a wonderful journey. I'd do it all again. I would do it all again. I don't know how many other people could say that, but I would do it all again. I'd marry the same wife. I'd have the same kids. 
I'd, com- I'd be committed. I might not make some of the mistakes I made knowing what I know now. But I do it all again because it's been a glorious life serving Jesus, bowing our knee to him and saying, Lord, not my will but thine be done. You know, there comes a time in believers' lives where this is not just something we receive, but it's something we get inside of us internally and we, it changes our very focus. It's now not what I can get, but it's also what I can give. That I am called and my life is now not my own, but I've been bought with a price. And then my life and my time on this earth is not just for me to be involved in my own frivolous life's activities, going here and doing that and going there. And yes, you can have fun. And yes, you need to have relaxation. But there ought to be a place in every Christian's heart where we bow our knee and we say, God, am I doing what you want me to do? Am I going where you want me to go? Am I saying what you want me to say? Should I be making a course correction? I'm concerned about a generation right now where we built a lot of Christians and some churches are very big, and I'm not against big churches. But sometimes we built a crowd that's 10 miles wide and only an inch deep. Where people don't know much more than Jesus will forgive me of my sins and I can go out and live in freedom. And they have never come to a place where they've taken that gospel internally and saying, yes, I will not be ashamed, nor will I ever be. Even if people reject it, even people reject me, even if they don't like what I'm saying, even if they don't like the gospel that I'm preaching, even if they criticize me, even if they make fun of me, even if they persecute you, me, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not now, nor will I ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With the power of God into salvation, I got a book, the, a book sent to me the other day, and I, I don't know the author, but there's a little memo pad on the outside that said, you're in this book. So I looked at it written by a woman, and I didn't know who it was. And the story started off about this young baby was born to uh, a family in America. He was an uh, American bike rider, by, in a bike gang. She was an Armenian, and they had this, it conceived out of wed, wedlock. And when she got pregnant, the, the biker decided to marry her, but his family didn't like uh, her at all. And when the baby was born, the biker decided that he wasn't gonna have anything to do with her, and so he left. And they had many spats and many problems, and he wanted to get back at her, so he took the child, abducted her, kidnapped her, and took her far away from her mother. And there she was taken into their home. The biker got married again. He had kids. But this young girl was destined to live her life out, her early years, out in the basement of that house where all she was fed with peanut butter sandwiches and water day in, day out. And she was not allowed up into the main house like her brothers and sisters were. She wasn't allowed to do anything. She sat in that basement all day long, all night long. And when she got a little bit older, the dad would come down and abuse her sexually. And when she got a little older, he'd have his friends over and they'd abuse her. And she said, she said, I never celebrated a Christmas. I never celebrated a birthday. And I'd hear all that was going on until she was 13 years old. She lived down in the basement. And every time they'd go out of the house, she'd go up the stairs and try to check to see whether the door was unlocked. If she tried to escape, but she couldn't. But one day... She found that they had forgot to lock the door and she escaped and she went out of the house and didn't know where to go and went living on the streets. And as she was living on the streets, she lived there for a few years and she learned how to manipulate, dive and steal and do whatever she had to survive. 
When one day uh, uh, a man and women who owned a, 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 a strip joint uh, took her in and allowed her to live in their basement. And she lived in the basement and they'd feed her and as time went on, they taught her mathematics, they taught her English, and so she got good enough at a young age, still in her teen, young teens, that she could do, take care of the math, and she'd sit at the till, and she'd take in the money from the, the waiters and the waitresses, and, and she'd watch all this craziness going on in the, in the strip joint, and when she got older, they put her out there as a, as a stripper. And she did that, and she didn't know anything else of life, and she just became a stripper, and she was so depressed and discouraged, she got bound on drugs, and as the story went on, she was a stripper, and then the, the building uh, burnt down. And so now she couldn't live in the basement of that, 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 uh, that, uh, that establishment, and so she had to go get her own apartment. She got a little apartment, and and she'd have to take taxi to the other strip joint where she would, would work. And she would go to the strip joint, she would go to her drug dealer, and then she'd go home. And many of her travels were in the middle of the night to 3 o'clock in the morning. And, and she'd oftentimes get the same taxi driver. And the taxi driver was born again. And little by little, he began to tell her the story of Jesus, you know, a little bit here and a little bit there, and, and, and not too much so that she'd be turned off, but just a little bit. Jesus loves you and his great plan for your life. And she'd hear this story for about six or eight months till one day the, the taxi driver said to her while well, he was taking her to the drug, to, to, to her dealer, he said, I want you to do me a favor. You know I've been straightforward. I've, I've been good to you. She said, he said, I want you to come to that tent, that, that yellow, blue, and red tent you see in front of that school. I want you to come to one of the services. And the lady said, no, I, I don't think I will. I, have a, I don't want to do that. I, I, but she went to work one night, a couple nights later, and she realized she wasn't on shift. And she didn't want to go home yet, and she knew it couldn't get a hold of her drug, drug dealer until later on, and a few hours later, and so she decided to Make your way down that tent, she said, on the back row of the gospel tent where a preacher stood there and preached the gospel. And after he had shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that I'm not ashamed of, as he shared the gospel of Jesus Christ, something touched her life and she realized that she didn't have to live the way she was living and she didn't have to live a lonely life and she didn't have to be all by herself and she didn't have to live a purposeless life. When the invitation was given, she raised her hand and she came to the front. The preacher recited a prayer, and she prayed with that preacher. And she said, then the preacher, the last chapter of the book, then the preacher came up to me and said, I break that curse of suicide off your life. I, curse, I break those curses of drugs and addiction off your life. And then she said, he went and prayed for other people, and he came back to me again. He said, furthermore, you're going to minister to people and touch people and help people that have been in the same situation and circumstance that you have been all your life. And the book ended. And at the back of the book it said, thank you for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. I went to the front of the book. It said, dedicated to all the women, boys and girls who have been abused, who didn't have a fair start. This book is for you because of my love for Jesus. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I still don't know who that lady is. I don't really know where that tent meeting was, to be honest with you. But I do know that the gospel transforms people's lives. 
It can take the stubborn, most broken-hearted person and heal them and cleanse them and change them, turn their life around. I was pastoring in London, Ontario for a season, Sharon and I, and we had gone through a little bit of a church split and the income was down, the attendance was down. And I remember saying, God, you got to pay the way. I said, I'm not going to do this. Either you're in this thing or you're not. And if you're not in it, I'm not going to try and carry it. It's too hard. And I remember saying, God, I don't care whether you build the crowd or you send in a millionaire, but somehow you're going to have to build, build this thing. And I had an office over our underground parking. We were on Richmond Row, and I would walk back and forth on that, on that, in that parking, uh, in that office. I'd walk back and forth, and I'd look out the window. I could see cars coming in under our building because that was the driveway to our underground parking, and I, I'd see different cars. I got to know people's families by their cars. I knew who each car was. And, and I'm just walking back and forth, praying for the morning service, praying that God would touch and work for me. And, and I saw this uh, nice Mercedes Benz come in, and I, I thought, man, I don't know anybody has a Mercedes Benz. Maybe somebody's prospering in the church now. Praise God. And I kept on praying and walking back and forth and saw some other cars come in. I knew who they were. And then I went over to the window again, and I saw this BMW uh, go down. I said, I don't know anybody with a beautiful BMW car and I thinking praise God our people are prospering and I went out that morning and I preached a message on the gospel of Jesus Christ and there was a couple sat at the very back row and there they sat and it was interesting because they were sitting together but they both had their arms folded with their shoulders almost back to back of each other and I thought that's very strange when I gave an altar call for people to receive Jesus, I watched as, as he, he, he stuck up his hand like this uh, so that she wouldn't see. And she stuck up her hand like this so he wouldn't see. And I gave an invitation for people to come forward. Yes, I believe in taking a stand for Jesus. Jesus took a stand for you. I think there's something powerful about people getting out of their chairs and coming forward and making a public profession that... Today, my life changes. Today, I'm not going to serve myself. Today, I'm not going to serve foreign gods, but I'm going to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I am going to receive the gospel of the Jesus Christ, which has power to transform my life. And so I called them forward, and they came forward. One came up this side, one came up this side. I learned later that they were a couple, and they got saved very quickly, and turned out they made a lot of money, and he Sometimes Mrs. Sunday would come back on a Tuesday and he'd come back with a check for $10,000, $14,000 and say, Pastor Mark, I'm sorry I wasn't here this weekend, but I made some money this weekend, so I want to bring my tithes. And I said, thank God. He was helping us through a difficult time. A few years later, he came into my office one, one Tuesday morning. He said, Brother Mark, I got some bad news. He said, we really feel that God's calling us to move away down to Georgia. And I felt very bad. And he took off his watch and he, he said, I want to give this to you. He says, you probably don't have a, as much of a need to receive this as I have to give this. He said, because I never want God, money to be my God. He took off the watch and he gave me the box. He said, I want to give to you as a, as a token of love. He said, and, and I looked at the watch. I didn't, know what kind of, I didn't know anything about watches. And I called my wife later. I said, honey, somebody give us a watch. And uh, she said, what's the name? I, I said, it must be worth a couple hundred dollars. And she said, what's the name on it? I said, a Rolex, Rolex. And she said, I think it's worth more than a couple hundred dollars. <laughs> and I, I, went down to, I went down the street and I found out that it was worth about $9,500. And, 
And now if you had one of those, it would be worth about $27,000 or $30,000. But it wasn't about the watch. He said, you know, I've made all kinds of good decisions in my life. He said, I've made good business decisions. I've married a good wife. I live in a good community. I drive good cars. I, I've, had, I've made good decisions. But he said, the best decision I ever made was that Sunday morning, my wife and I were having an argument at home, and we knew that it was our marriage is over if something didn't intervene. We didn't know where to go or who to turn to. We decided maybe religion could help us, and we looked in the phone book, and we saw the priest, and we didn't want to go to a priest. And they saw the word reverent, and it said, that sounds too religious. But they saw the word pastor, and they saw the church name was Word of Life, and, and so they come, and they said, that sounds like an interesting place to go. Let's go there. And so they were still mad at each other. They went in separate cars. But he said, the best decision I ever made was the morning that my wife and I came in here and we gave our life to Jesus Christ. It's been the power of God unto salvation to those who believe. I'm talking about a gospel that will change your life. I'm talking about a gospel that will penetrate into your life. I'm talking about a gospel. Listen, if you're a believer this morning, and most of you probably are, if you're not, you can be. But if you are a believer, I'm talking about a gospel that can penetrate much deeper into your life than it has yet. That has more power than you have yet even received. And I'm not ashamed of this gospel because as we preach it, faith rises up and gets into our spirit and our life gets changed. I am not now, nor will I ever be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Decision number one. Number two, Paul says this. Don't worry, I'll be done in just a couple minutes. Decision number two, Paul says this. He says, I am a debtor. You know, I, I don't know how many churches I go into and people come up to me and say, oh, Jesus did so much for me. I owe so much to him. And while that may sound nice, it's not theologically sound. You see, Paul the Apostle didn't say I'm a debtor to the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. He said, I'm a debtor to the Jew, the Greek, the bond, the free. Your salvation was a free gift. Not by your works of righteousness, lest any man should boast. In other words, you were given a free gift, and God does not expect you to try and repay it back. You can't give it back. You can't pay it back. You owed a debt you couldn't pay. He paid your debt he didn't owe, and he gave you a free gift. You do not owe the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. You, owe, you are a debtor to the Jew, the Greek, the bond, the free, the lost, the suffering, the sighing, the bleeding, the dying. This is your challenge. Why do we serve God? Not because we owe him. We serve him because we love him. Why do we do what we do? We do what we do because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and we have received this wonderful gospel, but we know that Jesus commanded us, freely, freely you have received. Freely, freely you must give. And our debt, if you will, if you'll open your eyes this morning, our debt is to our neighbors. Our debt is to our employees. Our debt is to our employers. Our debt is to the people we work with. Our debt is to our family. Our debt is to the people we see at Tim Hortons week after week. Our debt is to the people that we come in contact with, the Jew, the Greek, the bomb, the free, the wise, the unwise. Pretend with me for a second. You're at home. I don't know whether... 
<clears throat> you live like, lived, ever lived like this, but I did when I was growing up. We don't live like this now. We got freezers full of food. But when I was a kid, I was, we were a family of seven. And by Thursday, the fridge would get pretty empty. And so would the cupboards. Because on Friday night, my parents would go out and get groceries. And they'd buy what they could. And if we ran out, it was slim pickings. You just scrounged around. If you didn't find anything, you wasn't going to eat it. They had like a whopping $35. I remember the budget. My dad got upset one time when the grocery bill was over $35. For seven people. And that was how we lived. But just pretend you're at the end of the week and you look in the fridge and you want to have something to drink and you got just a little left over this, a little left over that, not even enough to make a glass. But being frugal, person that you are, you decide you're going to pull out all the almost empty cans and you're going to just mix it together. You put some, you know... Uh, uh, pineapple juice and orange juice and you mix some tomato juice and some lemonade and you mix it together and you just say, I'm going to get rid of it all, throw out the bottles and get rid of it. You just got, you're about ready to sit down and drink that glass when a neighbor comes by, knocks on the door and he comes in and being as mannerly, you want to give him something, he says, can I get you a glass of water? And he looks over and says, what's that right there? I'll have that. And he said, no, no, you don't want that. That's, that's just a bunch of stuff we mix together. You don't want that. Uh, you want some water? No, no, I want that. And so reluctantly, you give him that glass, that concoction of whatever it was, and you're embarrassed, but you give it to him, and he drinks it, and he said, that was really good. You have his conversation. He goes away the next day at the same time. He knocks on the door, and he says, brother, he says, you know that drink you gave me last, last, yesterday? Can you make me another one like that? And you try to think, ah, were you Really? And so you go to the fridge, and you got an open bottle, you got all these new cans there and new bottles, and you open them up and you try to mix it to the best of your recollection, and you give them a glass, and you're embarrassed that, that you're giving it to him, and you're also stupefied as to why he wants it. And you give it to him, and the next day he comes back again, and he wants the same thing. And you say, Well, what, what's going on? And the next day he comes back, and after a week, finally you get enough courage, you say, what is going on with this? How come you want this? And I'll try to make a recipe for, for you, but how come you like this? He says, it's just good. I say, come on, it's more than good. What's going on? And the guy says, you don't understand. He said, months ago, I was diagnosed with HIV. And about a month and a half ago, it became full, full bone AIDS. But the day I walked into your house, when I took that, that drink, I started to feel better. And the next day, I felt even better. And the next day, it wasn't very tasty, to be honest with you, but it made me feel good. And after the fourth day, he said, I felt really good. And the fifth day, he said, I felt even better. He said, yesterday, I went to the doctors, and they tested, and they tested, and they retested, and I don't have HIV, and I don't have AIDS anymore. Now, can I ask you something? That's just an illustration. What would you do? What would you do if you by just accident, discovered the cure for AIDS. Would you hold it to yourself? Would you keep it back? Would you bottle it up? Would you, would you shut your mouth? Would you just hide away and not give it to anybody? No. You, you try to get that cure out to everybody you could find. But can I tell you, we have a cure, a cure for something greater than AIDS. We have a cure for sin. We have a cure for heartache. We have a cure for brokenness. We have a cure for those who mourn. We have a cure for those who are sick. His name is Jesus. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I am not now, nor will I ever be, ashamed of the gospel.
It's the power of God. Finally, Paul says this. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He says, I'm a debtor to the Jew, the Greek, the bond, the free, and not to the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, but to the Jew, the Greek, the bond, the free. Somebody paid it forward for me. His name was Jesus. Now I'm going to pay it forward for them by telling them. And finally, then he says, I, as much as is in me, I am ready. You know, I found out all over the world, we tell people that we need to take the gospel and to the corners of the earth. And I talk to pastors and say, we're getting ready. Just wait until we build our auditorium a little bit bigger. Just wait until we get our TV cameras. Just wait until, we're, we're getting ready, we're getting ready. And you talk to Christians and say, we need to go take the gospel to the four corners of the world. And they say, they're getting ready. And time's clicking and the, at the end, uh, the final curtain's about ready to be drawn. And I go from church to church and people are getting ready. But Jesus didn't tell us to get ready. He told us to be ready. And so we look at it, and can I tell you something? It's a mixture, and we need to take seriously the understanding when a pastor or a teacher or somebody in the church says you really need to take this course and, and study this. They want, they, they want you to learn. They want you to become stronger. But, but in that, realize this, that what you've got going for you right now without those courses is still greater than what a lost person has. You see a nice shiny car there with somebody's permanent pressed hair and Botox face. And they drive by and you're all bedazzled by, the, by their beauty. And you know Jesus and they don't. Can I tell you, they may look like they got lots going for them, but it's all going to wither, fade away. But the Christ we have in us abides forever, Hallelujah. And somewhere in between good sense and pastors and leadership trying to take their people deeper in the spirit, if we're not careful, we can get a spirit of inferiority, a spirit of insufficiency in our life, and the enemy just jumps on us. You're not smart enough. You don't know enough. You don't know how to pray good enough. You didn't raise your hands high enough. You didn't give enough money. You weren't faithful enough. You didn't go to church enough. You missed, you know, come on. I had one lady come up to me and say, Pastor, I'm so sorry. I know the Spirit wanted to move this morning, but, you know, when everybody raised their hands, I couldn't get my hand up high enough, and I'm sorry. I, I, I blew it. I, I stopped the move of God. I'm like, are you crazy, lady? As if you not raising your hands could stop God from moving? How stupid of thinking that is. Listen, there's not, I don't think there's one person in this room that thinks that we know enough. We all can learn. We all can study more. We all could have more. But I'm not going to use for an excuse what I don't have. I'm not going to stand there when somebody's drowning and say, hey, I didn't take my first aid, so I can't help you. I'm not a lifeguard. I can't throw a rope. No. They don't care whether you've gone to lifeguard school. They don't care. They don't care if you have your Red Cross. They're not yelling while they're going under, you know, what credentials do you have? Do you have? They don't care whether you're the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. They don't care. They don't care whether you're a doctor, a lawyer. They don't care whether you're a 
pimp. They could care less who you are. All they want to know is, can you throw a rope? Can you throw a rope? Jesus said, I've called the foolish to confound the things that are wise. And I think one of the biggest things that hangs around, and you can go from city to city, country to country, and there's spirits that prevail, prevail over certain churches and certain, certain people. I know that in Pakistan, one of the things is a very serious spirit of, of jealousy from church to church. Very serious. It's got to be broken. But I think one of the biggest spirits that rises over us is in our desire to be excellent, in our desire to do everything to the glory of God, we need to be very careful that we don't have the devil jump on our back and tell us that we can't do anything for Jesus. You may not know it all. You might not have it all. Paul said as much. He didn't say as much as I should have. He didn't say it. He said as much as is in me. I may not have it all, but I got something. I may not know exactly the Roman road, but I do know how to tell somebody they need to be saved. I may not have gone to that soul winning class, but I do know what it means to get saved from our sin. I may not know exactly how to lay my hands on somebody, but I can pray for them to be healed. Maybe I didn't go to all those courses, and I should, and I'm not against education. But the enemy would jump on you and say, you're not smart enough, you're not good enough, you're not pretty enough, you're not handsome enough, you don't know enough, you didn't jump through this hope, you didn't jump through that hope. And I watch Christians all over the place buy into that. And if there is a hoop we need to jump through, let's discover it tonight. Let's just jump through it so we can all get, be about going and reaching the people for Jesus. If there is a hoop. But I'm here to tell you there is no hoop. You just got to look inside and say, I may not have much. Most Christians say, I don't have a whole lot of money. I don't have a fine, fancy car, you know. My Jesus, he's all right. My Jesus, he's clean out of sight, you know. He's some kind of wonderful. In our stupidity, when somebody needs something, we say, look to Jesus. And the person's looking, and where is he? I don't know. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, they used to sing, standing somewhere in the shadows, you'll find Jesus, beautiful hymn. And I remember as a kid looking around thinking, <laughs> I think he's under the baptismal tank over there. <laughs> Paul said, as much as is in me. I'm sure when Paul was writing that, he was thinking, I don't know as much as I want to know. I don't have as much as I want to have. But what I got is more, is sufficient enough. Peter at the gate beautiful, Peter, Peter at the gate beautiful, he says, he didn't say, look to my pastor. He's really cool. He has gray hair and a beard. And he's really, really old, but he looks really, really young. No. Peter said, look at me. As much as I have. Can I tell you something? You may have only been saved for one day. 
But if you're saved and they're not, you've got more than enough to do what needs to be done. More than enough. Paul said, I am not now nor have I ever been ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it's the power of God and salvation. I am a debtor to the Jew, the Greek, the bond, the free. Not the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, but to the Jew, the Greek, the bond, the free. And as much as is in me, it may not be much. It may not be everything I want to have. It may, not, it may be very little, but I still have something inside me. On my worst, ugliest, bad hair day, booger in my eye day, I still have more going for me than that guy with the shiny car and the permapressed hair and the Botox face. Because I got Jesus on the inside. Something within me. We had this treasure in earthen vessel, Christ in us. The hope of glory. Would you acknowledge the Christ in you right now? Christ in me.